0: James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 26 and 27 this morning, and, and while you're, some of you may still be turning there, let me read to you a story from the book, The Whisper Test by Mary Ann Bird. Here's what she wrote. And I want you really to listen to this, because she's writing about herself. I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. See, I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and a garbled speech. And when schoolmates asked what happened to your lip, I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass because somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade that we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was short. She was round. She was happy. She was a sparkling lady. And annually, we had a a hearing test. And Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class. And finally, it was my turn. And I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her soft whisper, I wish you were my little girl. Friends, can I ask you a question this morning? Does your mouth redeem people like that? Do your lips communicate grace and mercy and love unimaginable? Because James says in chapter one, and we'll look at verse twenty six. if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Now, if you remember from last week's sermon, James wrote in verse 22 that some of the scattered church was listening to the word of God being preached, but they were not obeying it. They were hearing it but they weren't responding to it. And he stated that those particular people who had separated, remember, this is how James defines immaturity. They separated the knowledge of God from righteous living. There was a gap and a gulf between the two. Maturity is the knowledge of God that moves us to live righteously. And some people had separated those Two things, and they were deceiving themselves, he says. And so now he writes to others in verse 26, who also are being deceived. And these people are those who would have counted themselves as, listen, because this is us. If you're here this morning, it's probably you, as very religious people, but whose religion, James says, was worthless. You see, they had lulled themselves into a false sense of righteousness through their own religion. It's amazing. So let me ask you your second question. Your first was, does your mouth communicate grace? Now listen. Might there be someone this morning that is here that needs to hear what James is saying? Because James gives three evidences of a religion that is worthwhile to God. What are they? Let's look at them. The first evidence of a religion that's worthwhile to God is a controlled tongue. Here's what he says again. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Now notice that James begins here with if anyone... Rather than what he's been saying, dear brothers, all through chapter 1, it's been dear brothers. Now he says, if anyone has been, uh, or uh, rather considers himself religious. You see what James is doing, he's taking his pastoral net and he's casting it even wider. Before he was casting it to those who were obediently living, the dear brothers, the sisters in Christ. Those who were following after the Lord, who were ministering to one another. Now he casts this net even larger And says, if anyone, anyone who considers himself religious. You know, weeks ago I pointed out, this was almost, I believe, the second or third week in this series. I pointed out that that word consider, I remember this, weeks ago I showed you that the word consider in the Greek means to lead your mind with truth. It means to enter into a trial that comes suddenly upon you. With truth already in your mind that God is good, God is righteous, God will provide a way out of that trial when he deems it necessary. But until then, you endure underneath the trial because the enduring of a trial creates perseverance and it tests your faith, moving you on to maturity. That's what we talked about from that word consider. But here, it's a different Greek word. It's the same English word. But it's a different Greek word and it means to subjectively form an opinion about a matter. You see, before, consider in verse 2 meant that the word of God objectively leads us through trials. Here is that we deliberate in our own minds and we come up with an objective or subjective rather personal perspective. So instead of the truth of God leading our minds and forming our perspective objectively and accurately, our own opinions, our own interpretation leads our mind and then forms the perspective. Let me give you an example how this works. Some of you are so tired this morning. I feel bad for you. I'm going I'm to start getting objects to throw. <laughs> Loving objects. Darts. No, I'm kidding. Before Denise and I got married... Here's an object that wakes you up. Illustrations always work. I was working out at a health club. I worked at the health club and I was working out and there was this guy on a bench doing uh, dumbbell curls. And uh, he happened to find out that I was getting married shortly and then he asked where we were going on our honeymoon and I said Cancun, Mexico. I've scraped every cent I could together to be able to do this trip. What a way to launch our marriage. And he just sits there shaking his head. I said, why are you shaking your head? He says, because honeymoons are horrible. I said, would you explain that? He says, well, I took my wife on a honeymoon. We got married. He we went over to a Caribbean island. And, uh, and while we were there, right in the beginning, I got f- deadly food poisoning. I was in the hospital for the entire week. So I thought I'd make up for it. Six months later, I took her down to the, uh, to the coast of Florida. And we were swimming. And right at the beginning of our trip, I got bit in the foot by a shark and spent my time in rehab." Says so, so honeymoons are terrible. You see, because of his experiences of friends. Listen, we do this all the time because of your experiences and because of your own dialogue with yourself, you form a subjective opinion. And James says, anyone who has subjectively formed an opinion that you are religious, then you better be doing something. And he tells you what it is in a minute. See the word religious refers to external, listen, external religious rituals, liturgies, routines, and ceremonies. In short, here's what the word religion means. It's the external form of worship. So this morning, you came here and you sang the songs. This morning, you have your Bible out. This morning, you even showed up. You might have given money into the offering plate. All of those are at least external forms of religion. I don't know if your heart is grudging to God for having to give money in the plate. I don't know if your heart is even in tune with your lips when you're singing the worship. I don't know if you were forced to come here or if you want to come here. But external forms of worship is what this word religious means. See, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian in the first century... He used this same exact Greek word to describe the worship that was occurring in the temple at Jerusalem. All the bleeding of the horns, all the bleeding of the sheep, all the, all of the, the blood and all of the, all of the, the, throwing the money into the 13 trumpet-shaped offering plates. All of these things Josephus described in one word called religious. But, friends, listen, any religious worship that does not influence your heart and therefore your actions, friends, listen, it is worthless. Throw it away. James writes to these people who are seeing themselves subjectively as religious. And if we were to bring it into our day, they attended church. They went to Bible studies. They owned their Bibles. They prayed before meals. They seemed to be worshipers. But listen, their mouths betrayed their true condition. Look what he says. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. That phrase, tight rein, is an equestrian phrase. It means to restrain the bridle that was put into the the horse's mouth, the bit. It means to govern. It means to control what comes out of our mouths. So if religion is going to be worthwhile to God, if you're going to have an evidence of a religion that is worthwhile to God, then the mouth of that person will bring glory to God and edification to other people. But you see, their mouths, the the people that James is targeting with this net, that if anyone considers himself subjectively religious, their mouths betrayed what was in their hearts. It was vulgarity. It was slander. It was judgmentalism. It was gossip. It was lying. It was criticality. You see, a corrupt and unholy heart will eventually be betrayed by a corrupt and unholy talk. James later puts it this way in chapter 3, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Once when John Wesley was preaching, he noticed a woman known for her critical attitudes staring at his tie. And when the service ended, she came up to him, now listen, and said sharply, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It's an offense to me. Well, he asked if any of the ladies, true story, if any of the ladies present had a pair of scissors in their purse to which one did. And he thanked them um, and he handed them to his critic and asked her to trim the strings to her liking, to which she did. And when she was finished, he asked, are they now to your liking? And she responded, yes, then let me have those shears for a moment, said Wesley. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a bit of correction. I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. It's too long. Please stick it out. I'd like to take some off. Friends, you and I must keep continuously. That's what the Greek tense means. Must continuously and repeatedly every minute, every hour, every day, every week and every month. Never a time off. We must keep rain on our hearts with our tongues. You see, redemptive tongues curb and control the flesh. Did you know that? Let me give you some examples. See, our flesh desires to spread that gossip. Proverbs says it's a choice morsel, the best part of the steak that you've been waiting to get. Gossip is a choice morsel, but the tongue of the redeemed in Christ reign that impulse in. Our quick reaction upon the threat of something being exposed in our life is to lie, but the tongue of the righteous refuses. That elusive critical thought that flicks through our heads when we see somebody, holiness stops it and what comes out of our mouths is further building up and edification. Edification. See, the evidence, friends, of a worthwhile religion or a worthwhile worship is a redemptive and a controlled tongue. I mean, how many people do you know? Just think privately in your mind and put yourself in that mirror as well. How many people do you know that claim to be Christians, but yet have a tongue that just picks at people, slanders people, judges people, enjoys gossip, but always puts the righteous twist on it. This person wouldn't mind if I tell you, oh yeah, I think they probably would in a lot of occasions. See, this is what the tongue does. And friends, listen, a tongue that is not reigned in betrays a worthless religion. James levels two accusations to the ones in here in this room, me and you included, whose tongues are not in control. Number one, he says he deceives himself literally. In almost every translation, it means he deceives his own heart. You see, such a religion that does not affect the tongue is a religion that has not affected the heart because our words flow out of our mouths from one source. The Bible says our heart. This religion is useless, friends. It is worthless. It does not allow God to work in us or through us. But that word deceives is a different word in the Greek. You remember verse 22? Look at it with me if you would. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Remember last week, I told you that that word means to reason wrongly and miscalculate. You do a, a calculated problem in math on the grease board and you come out with the wrong answer. That's what that word means. It means to miscalculate. But here it means something different. Now listen, it means to literally, so this is what literally it means, to seduce your own heart into error. It means to seduce your own heart into error. I'm religious. I go to church. I sing the songs. I mark my Bible. Therefore, I am righteous. That's the seducing into error. Just because we do religious things doesn't mean that our religion is worthwhile to God. What does mean it? Or what shows it is when our tongue is controlled and when we speak for people in a way that brings them up rather than brings them down. We speak to God in a way that lifts him up and puts him in the center of our lives rather than put him down worshiping us. This tongue is redemptive and the religion is worthwhile. Billy Graham says this. He says most people in America have just enough religion to keep them from getting the real thing. They have just enough to inoculate them against God. Friends, that's all around us. Religion can create the sense that I am in good standing with God. But I'm here to tell you this morning, and James is speaking this morning, to say that if a religion is going to be worthwhile for God, it has three evidences. And the first one is that there's a control of the tongue. But there's another one, another accusation that James levels. He says his religion is worthless. Look in that verse, that verse again. Worthless means devoid of force. It means to be fruitless. It means to have no truth, have no success or result. So to be, to be, for him to say his religion is worthless, it means that the one whose tongue is not reigned in continuously will have utterly no transforming power coming through their faith coming through their worship, it will not transform them and it will not be transformative to anybody else. Peter used the exact same Greek word in 1 Peter one eighteen in talking about paganism and idolatry. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from. the Here it is. Empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. So a religion, if you're here this morning... And you're saying that you are a believer in Christ, you're a worshiper of God, then there must be an evidence if your worship is worthwhile to God himself and that word, that evidence is that you keep a control over your tongue. See, religious people do not transform those around them, for they themselves are untransformed. In other words, externally religious people only, whose hearts are not transformed, have no transforming power. Friends, this is what redemptive community is. Redemptive community is community that is a powerful force of transformation. And it's a community made up of brothers and sisters like you and I who have learned to say that our tongues must continuously be reigned in. There is never a moment of gossip, critical nature, judgmentalism, lying, vulgarity that's ever acceptable to God because it denotes that our worship is worthless. James gives another evidence, though, of a worthwhile religion, and it's a compassionate life, verse 27. Would you read it with me? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. It's a compassionate life. See, James has shown what worthless religion is. Now he points out two evidences of a pure religion. The religion that exerts a redeeming and a positive influence on our lives and those we come in contact with, that religion is acceptable to God. But here he doesn't give. Now, you need to understand this. James is not trying in verse 26 and 27 to give a broad, comprehensive definition of what religion is, what Christianity is, what true worship is. He's pointing out three things that were a problem in his audience. And one of them was they had loose tongues. They had people that claimed to be brothers and sisters in Christ that were running each other down, that were enjoying gossip, that were lying. And he says it's worthless. But there's a second evidence, a second problem that they had. It's these people who were forming this exponentially growing church in the first century, and they're embedded right in a community where needy people are all around them, yet they weren't even concerned about them. So he brings to their mind the evidence of a worthwhile uh, uh, worship and he says that one of the evidences is a compassionate life. Caring for others in distress. Now generally the neediest people, now understand this, the neediest people in the time of the early church were orphans and widows. Why? There was no life insurance. There were no welfare programs. None of these were available. Janelle Potts would have utterly been without a job. That was a joke. Orphans had no access to inheritance She works for Salvation Army, by the way. Nothing worse than a pastor that jokes and doesn't explain his jokes. Orphans had no access to inheritances. Widows could not get jobs. In fact, the inheritance of a widow went to their eldest son. These two groups, orphans and widows, were reduced. I want you to stop for a second. It's too easy to hear this and not be penetrating into our, into our hearts. I want you to stop for a second. I want you to think of if you were a widow if you were an orphan. Friends, here's your life. ready? It's sitting and standing by the gate of the city, running after wagons, running after merchants, praying that something would jostle out of the wagon that you could have for your family or for yourself, begging, please give us something to eat. Please give me some change. Give me something because you utterly have no way to sustain your life. And if you can't find a way to make the begging work for you, then you have to sell yourself into slavery. This was happening all over the first century. The neediest people were the orphans and the widows. And they were under distress. The Greek means a pressure that just kept steadily and inexorably squeezing and pushing until the the light that they had was extinguished and the hope that they had ran out. But here's the worst. You ready? You know what James is saying when he says orphans and widows? That's just a title. By the way, friends, we've got orphans and widows all around us. You know what he's really saying? Orphans and widows typified people who were utterly unable to reciprocate in any way. You help a widow, there's no paying you back. You give money to an orphan, you'll never see it again. And James is saying that's what compassion is. That's the evidence of true worship. That's the evidence of what the Father Beats in his own heart, Psalm 68, 5. He's a father to the fatherless, a a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. True worshipers, friends, true worshipers of God move compassionately toward anyone in need, whether they can pay it back or not. The expression of this compassion gives proof to the purity of our worship. If we are Christians externally focused in our religion, but there is no compassion, which in Jesus' life, in the Greek, it meant there was a movement at the very bowels of his body, which meant the innermost part of a Jew's body. If there's no movement, when I see somebody in need, there is no evidence of a worthwhile religion. A man once told D.L. Moody that his spiritual life felt like he was on top of a mountain with Christ for the past five years and moody asked him how many souls have you led to christ says well i don't know well have you led any persisted moody i don't know that i have answered the man well sit down then because when a man gets so high that he can't reach down there's something wrong friends there's something wrong in the church and i'm going to put it this way there's something wrong in cornerstone if we do not move with compassion to people in need Because the word look after, in that in that verse, to look after orphans, it means a whole lot more than just popping in for a chat now and then. Every once in a while I go up to Dottie Kaiser's home. Dottie lives in Bangor, she lives by herself, but looking after Dottie is a lot more than just me popping up there every once in a while to see how she's doing. The word means, in classical Greek, to uh, be a nurse to the sick. It carries the idea of, you're going to be surprised with this, elders, you better listen up. It carries the idea of looking over, caring after, and helping in whatever way is needed. That Greek word for look after is the same exact Greek word for bishop and elder and pastor. And if we're going to be a priesthood of all believers, which means that every person in Christ is a priest, then we've got to take seriously to look after those who are in need in a way that costs us something. So clearly what God finds faultless and pure is right living that comes from hearts that have been transformed by His Word. What's the third evidence? Look what he says in the end of chapter 1, verse 27. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Friends, this is a pure heart. Just as regular bathing keeps the body clean, regularly examining our hearts, confessing sin and avoiding evil keeps our souls from being polluted. Look what he says, and to keep oneself, it's a continuous, repeated tense in the Greek. It means to every day, watch over, guard over, keep your eye and your heart. Don't ever get your eyes off your heart because the moment you and I do, the moment the world comes in with this pollution. It's what he's been teaching. How do we do this? It's what he's been teaching. Number one, listen to the word of God. We've been hearing it for the last several weeks. Listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God. Learn to live in relationship with one another. Friends, you will not make it in this Christian life by yourself. God never designed it that way. I can't make it by myself and neither can you. We need one another to sharpen one another. Learn to live in relationship with dear brothers and sisters and finally, obediently apply what God has told us to do. Obediently apply it. Delayed obedience, friends, is just simply disobedience. If God is speaking to you through the word of God, through, through a friend, through an experience, through a sermon... Through a teaching, it is to be applied immediately or it will not be applied. This past week, our board met on Tuesday for our joint board meeting. We do this every month. And most of the time that we met, we took turns sharing with each other the dangers of the pride in our own lives, the areas of pride in our own lives. We confess this to one another. Friends, unpolluted means we need baths. Let me say that again. To be unpolluted means you've been taking baths. And the way that a Christian takes a bath, friends, listen, Psalm 51, it's how I launched my interim senior pastor ministry. It means to confess. To be unpolluted by the world is to be irreproachable. That simply means that people might disagree with what you say, People might not like what you believe, but they will not be able to disagree with the life of grace and mercy that you live. That's what it means to be irreproachable. James uses a word called world. It's, a, it's the most common word in the New Testament that represents fallen mankind and its ungodly spiritual system of philosophy, morals, and values. So when you hear the word world in the New Testament, you're talking about fallen man in all of the belief system, all of the values. You open up your newspaper, you're going to read about this world's belief system. You watch TV, you'll see it in color and in stereo. All of it's right in our faces. But James is not teaching you and I, you gotta get this. Please understand this. He's not teaching us to live a monastic life where we remove ourselves from the world. Rather, that we should live in the world with our lives and our reputations and our faith pure and secure in historic, friends, listen, in historic, pure Jewish thinking, Holiness was always found in separation from the world and in keeping the Torah. In Christianity, this is the advances that Christ made. Holiness keeps the word of God and obeys it as we walk into the world, keeping free from the evil to be found there. So here's what it means. The holiness of God is strong enough... The holiness of God that lives in us is strong enough to allow us to stride into the muck and the mire of human existence and being a purifying agent rather than to come out polluted. It's what true religion does. True religion controls the tongue. True religion lives compassionate life. And pure religion purifies the heart. That's what Jesus says in John 17. He says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world to be monks, to hole up in our Christian subcultures. He's never done that. He's never asked us to do that. In fact, that's attractional life, friends. If you've been in this church for any length of time then you'll know that this church was built on an attractional model. The Lord is rescuing us from that and creating a missional emphasis, which means we're not going to try to put on great, classy, wonderful programs so that the world will somehow be attracted to us. The world hates God. We're going to put on programs, we're going to teach and we're going to preach so that we move out of the church and into the community. That we move out into East and we move out into Phillipsburg and Nazareth and Bethlehem. All around us, wherever you are, your jobs, your schools, your neighborhoods, that's where God is moving you. Not to come out of the world, but to go into it with holiness, with compassion. With a pure heart and a reigned in tongue, so that your religion, your worship is worthwhile to God and powerful and transformative. McCarthy writes this about what James is writing here. He says, The genuine Christian cannot be happy or content when he fails to show compassion for others. It is not our perfection, he writes, that proves our salvation, but rather our hating our own imperfections. I mean, friends, isn't that you? Doesn't the word of God glaringly show you what he's not pleased with? Doesn't it make you want to just rip it out of your hearts and just put it at his throne? MacArthur says, with God's help and power, he moves to correct these things in our hearts. And in his inmost heart, the genuine Christian longs to speak and longs to do. Those things which are from a holy, pure, loving on his heart. Let me close with this. Julian, the apostate, and I want you to listen to this. This is, this is remarkable about what the church used to be like. It was a powerhouse in the communities. Julian, the apostate Roman emperor, from AD three sixty one to three sixty three, he was the nephew of Constantinople the Great. Constantinople brought reform to Rome with the power of the church. He wasn't a perfect man; he did a lot of mistakes, but he really moved Rome away from the god, the uh, the idols, and all the gods into a theocratic or at least towards a the theocratic nation. Now, here's what happened: Julian's family was murdered. And so he was raised by Constantinople, his uncle, who forced Julian to learn Christian doctrine as a child. And so Julian developed a lifelong hatred of Christianity. All you teens out there that don't want to come to church, you're going to grab hold of that when I can see it now. In spite of this, in spite of his hatred of Christianity that he died with, he said this about Christians, quote, It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, or the Christians, is what he called them, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. He's saying that Jews took care of their own, and Christians took care of everybody. He says, in spite of this, or it's disgraceful that, everyone all around this nation can see that our own people do not even receive aid from us. Friends, you know what he's saying? The church was such a powerhouse of redemptive community because they bridled their tongues and they refused to slander. They refused to gossip and they lived compassionately, regardless of who it was, even if they never would get paid back, they sacrificed. And because they did all this from a heart that was becoming more and more pure because of this, the head of the world took notice. You want to see if your worship or your religion is worthwhile? Do you want to see if your religion and your worship is pure and undefiled, friends? It's so easy. Look at the evidence. It is in your words. It is in your hands. And the evidence is in your hearts. Let's pray. I want to ask that every single person in here, would you close your eyes? I do not normally do that. But I want you to focus as closely as possible about on this question I'm going to ask you. With everyone's eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'm looking I'm the only one that I can see that is looking. I want to ask you, did God speak to you this morning? that your tongue needs to be controlled? Did he show you this morning that your tongue is out of control and that your religion is worthless? Means devoid of fruit, powerless. Did he show you this morning that you're really not living a compassionate life? You talk the language, you come to church, you read your Bible, but you don't give sacrificially to those who can never pay you back those who are in utter need? Or did he show you this morning that your heart needs a bath? I'm going to ask that you raise your hand. Everybody keep your eyes closed. Just raise your hand. Keep it up. Dozens and dozens. Friends, this is part of how we confess. Raise your hand if you haven't yet. Would you commit with me to begin praying in earnest for a worthwhile religion, a worship that bridles its tongue, a worship that purifies the heart, and a worship that engages our hands and feet in compassionate ministry? I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends all around this sanctuary. who have heard you speak this morning and know father that it's not to just listen but it's to do it's to respond immediately and obediently father i pray for them i pray that those crows that know how to pluck the truth from our minds will not find their way to this truth Lord, that you would be echoing around our hearts and our minds the words of James chapter 1, verse 26-27. Lord, that we would be made into a people whose tongues are bridled, whose feet and hands find ways to live compassionately, and whose hearts are becoming more and more pure and undefiled. Father, would you help them? Encourage them. Let them find somebody to talk to before they even leave today to have somebody pray for them. Encourage them, Father. You never can convict without grace. It's your spiritual anesthesia. Lord, let them hear your words and let them know that they are precious to you and that you can transform their lives. And in this we pray, Jesus' name. Amen.